You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, this is Andrea Bartz, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Andrea Bartz. She's the author of We Were Never Here, and her previous books include The Herd and The Lost Sight. Andrea, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, very exciting. And you dressed up for the occasion, which I'm, I, I'm very, um, how do you say? It's, you know, you, I, you knew what was audio, but you wanted to make sure that you had your earrings in. I, you know, I, I put them in this morning and they're not coming out. <laughs> I am just bringing it 100% all day, all day, just for you. They, uh, well, you had an earlier, you had an earlier uh, thing, right? Earlier yeah, earlier. I had today. I had um, a Facebook Live earlier, and then this evening I have um, an event with the bookstore, like a virtual event with the bookstore. So you get to see the full Zoom setup, even though your listeners can only imagine it. So picture a beautiful vase of flowers behind me, and the the We Were Never Here cover, which is sort of rainbow colored, propped up on a stand. It's got a little wooden stand. Um, and yeah, I'm wearing makeup and earrings, so this is totally different from the experience that most podcasters have with me. Hey, how how do you keep fresh? Because like I, I I get interviewed sometimes, and after an interview, I feel like I need a three hour nap. How like because I just I just being on is just hard. How how do you do three in a day? I, I it's got to be heroin or something. It's definitely heroin. No heroin would help you crash. Oh right, it's uh, the other one. Um, you know, it was, it was way different in person when some of these events were in person because you'd be tired all day, but then you would like thrive off the energy of an audience and actually seeing people. Um, but you know, just, I'm really excited about the book and I just love discussing the themes therein. Um, and so I don't know, for me, it's still fun to like connect with, with readers and talk about what I was hoping to do with the book. And I just, yeah, feel really tired in between, but as soon as we're rolling, I just, I love talking books. I could do it all day. So I do now for a while. Right. I forgot the in-person thing. Cause there is a, there is a beauty to being getting to the next event and going, Oh dear Lord, how is this going to happen? And then all of a sudden there's the, there's the energy of the room and the atmosphere. Yes. <clears throat> and then you're right back in it. It's just like, and then everything kind of yeah. goes away. And then it's so much fun. So that is the thing I really miss. And you know, the herd came out, March 24th, 2020, nothing else going on that week. Uh, I I don't know if you remember late March, 2020, but um, I had like a six city book tour planned that I had to cancel that week because that was when bookstores just closed down flat out. And we went into the, we, you know, we went into quarantine for the first time. So it's a little disheartening that a year and a half later, this is my second pandemic book launch. But, you know, this time I, I kind of knew ahead of time and I planned for it. And it's, um, it's much, it's, it's a very different experience when you have planned for it than when you thought it was all going to be one way. And then that week learned it was going to be something very different. So. Yeah. And I, I love how it was like, oh, we're just going to flatten the curve for a week. Remember the, remember the term was flatten the curve. And, uh, just give oh, us a couple of weeks and we'll flatten the curve. A couple of weeks. <clears throat> a couple of weeks. We'll make a lot of bread. It'll be fun. Right. <laughs> We'll all make sourdough and learn a new language. Oh, that's right. Oh my God. It was, it was sourdough bread. 
and there was well everyone needed toilet paper but i'm i'm still so traumatized by a lot of it that i forget the stupid stuff that we clung on to you know what i'm saying um yeah we were all gonna learn languages i took up crocheting i did some uh some needlepoint and embroidery i was like look at me getting crafty and i was like wow there's so much time i'm gonna get so much done there was a point where i was saying i was gonna write a screenplay none of that happened yeah, we are. Uh, and now we can't even say like you know back in the pandemic or like back in 2020 because it's all still happening and we're almost to 2022 yeah yeah, yeah. Well, how would so writing for me i feel like it killed my productivity when the pandemic hit some people are like oh this is great and my friends are like oh this must be great for you and i'm like absolutely not i mean i have to be okay with only doing 30 percent of what i used to do because this is crisis. I just locking me in a room all day is not the best thing for writing. Is not good for writing. No, I agree. I mean, I, in, in non-pandemic times, I'm a travel writer as well. And so I'm pretty used to juggling book writing with travel and with being new places. And I just find that travel is so good for creativity, right? It just, you see, you see things you hadn't seen. You start thinking about things in a new way. You just sort of opened up these channels that made it a lot easier to kind of creatively problem solve and come up with, you know, to do to do concepting, if you will. Uh, so all of that obviously was removed, and I was still on deadline. I think we were never here. The first draft was due April 30th, 2020. So I had a first draft that I'd worked on myself, and I kind of spent the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, revising it and getting it in good enough shape to show my editor. And it was good in the sense that I had something to work on, but I sort of had this creeping sense of dread of like, I know that I'm going to start, I'm going to need to start like producing something new and like, Lord, how am I going to do it while I stare at these same four walls? I was literally in a 380 square foot studio apartment in Brooklyn and I was living alone. And, um, you know, New York City was especially scary. A lot of the country, I don't think, realizes how very scary it was in the spring in New York. And, um, yeah, I just spent a lot of time with my cat. I couldn't read. I watched a lot of bad TV. My cat started sleeping in the closet, which was, like, the only place she could go to be away from me. Oh, my God. When the the cat's looking for an extra bedroom, then you're like, maybe I need to leave for a minute. Really? You're like... Maybe this isn't working. Yeah, I like thought I lost her because it's a, it's a studio apartment that is a rectangle. So I could always see her wherever I was. And one night I was like, Mona? And, you know, running around the room with increasing panic. Like, where would you have gone? I haven't left. I haven't opened the door. And um, then I finally found her very sleepily blinking up at me from the back of the closet. And I was like, I get it, girl. I get it. Um, but, she's like, she's yeah, like, this like, pandemic is not working for me because there were times when you would be gone for two days and someone else would feed me. That's the thing. She's like, you're so needy now. <laughs> I used to be gone for weeks at a time. I just would have a cat sitter come in. She was like, I do not like all this togetherness. It's way too codependent. Um, but, but yeah, we got, we got through it. I went and stayed with some friends over the summer and into fall and in, in DC and, um, Somehow here we are months later in a bit of, you know, of a reprieve, but, you know, definitely COVID's not over as we're saying. So still exactly. a pandemic on virtual events. Yeah. At, at least there's a little more, I, well, there's still fear, but what, what, what was going on in March was just nuts. It's just like, wait, I'm on my mount. I'm not, I shouldn't fly. Wait, when shouldn't I fly? You were, tra- when did you become a travel writer? 
So I started doing travel writing back in 2015, I believe. I was a magazine editor before that. And um, the magazines that I worked at kept folding because that's what happens with magazines. That's what they do in the 2010s. That's what they do. (laughs) It was like one after another. Like I worked at Glamour, not in print. I worked at Self, not in print anymore. I worked just like one after another, they were folding. And um, so I was freelance writing and traveling on the side. And then finally it was like, duh, maybe I should try writing about travel since that's what I love doing. Um, And so I just started, you know, making inroads into that, um, meeting editors in that field and sort of making inroads as a travel editor. And then I did it pretty intensely for a few years. Um, And, you know, I had trips planned for the rest of 2020 that we put off for what we thought was going to be a few months and here we are in the travel writing business, as far as I can tell, is not picked up again. So we'll, we'll see how much of that I actually go back to. I did love it, but, um, you know, now, now I have a partner. Now I have, you know, her dog that we watch as well. Like it wouldn't be quite as easy to be gone as much as, as often as I was back in the day. Um, so we'll see. So right now I've just got the books and I'm focusing on that. So did you get into a relationship during pandemic? I did. Yeah. How does how does that work? I'm one of those weirdos. Well, I was staying. I didn't with say Matthew. that. I didn't put that word out there. <laughs> no, there's a lot. Of, there's actually sort of like the sub community, and I think yeah. a lot of people were like, "Oh, it was kind of clarifying." Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, didn't date for months. Obviously, because we were all terrified of other humans and their noxious breath. I know. Remember when it was STDs, and now it's like you know, don't breathe. <laughs> truly like the whole like should we get tested like means something very different yeah. um but I was in DC for months with friends and um no end in sight and it was finally my therapist who was like you know at least be like good fodder for therapy if you would go and like have some safe socially distanced dates mm-hmm. uh in this in this other city um and so I like turned back on my apps and she was like the only the one and only person I went out with in DC we hit it off right away so um she is now she has now moved to New York and is living with me in Brooklyn wow one of those pandemic success stories yeah but the place you have is now more than 380 square feet right that is correct she did not move into the studio that would have been horrible now now we've got we've got an office we've got separate rooms there's doors all over the place so my cat is happy girlfriend's happy it's it's great <laughs> what part of Brooklyn are you in uh, i'm in park slope oh so okay cool yeah i get to be pretty close to prospect park which is great for you know, this time of year and great for the pandemic. I was, my little studio was in Williamsburg and mm-hmm. I don't know how well you know Brooklyn, but it's not a very green area or a very right. picturesque area. So it is much nicer to be uh, near Greenwood Cemetery and Prospect Park and just pretty streets down here in Park Slope. Yeah, I like Williamsburg a lot, but the minute you go outside your door, you're smash cut into uh, life and everything which which is great yeah. i i used to love that but as i get older i'm like i think yeah i need to see a tree i i, I don't I need to walk need over to... a body i need to see a tree yes i think so. the tree has become the priority for like my like the number one thing i'm looking for over nightlife that happened at some point i know i i don't know yeah uh, like bands are starting to play again i used to go see three bands uh, three shows a week so i used to write music for a bunch of different magazines and um my whole life was just live music and writing until 6 a.m. And when my editor came in at seven and I went to sleep, you know, it's uh, so, so, uh, so now it's like my, uh, 
bands are starting to play out again, you know, and my friends like, Oh my God, let's go see a band. I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do with my life. It's not a novelty to me, you know. It's, uh, yeah, I feel like I had that period. It was a lot of fun, but once you stopped, yeah. hard to get back into it. Oh my God, give me a book and a candle, it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, um, so so when you when was it that you because uh, your first book came out in 2019? Is that right? That's right. Yes, my first book, The Lost Night, came out in February 2019. So for that one, I could have my one and only in-person launch. <laughs> And uh, what what was what was the uh, when were you like uh, you know I'm a I've been an editor I've been a, a writer on uh, magazines I'm doing a novel because that's where they make all the money. Oh right, yes, I made the <laughs> I made a great, very intelligent move from magazine editing to book publishing. Yeah, because I'm going to write this for three years and not make a penny, and then it might not ever get published. It's and, true. The, and the it's joy true. of that. How, what brought you into that? It was a, definitely a different kind of writing. Um, I started working on The Lost Night when I was still gainfully employed, when I still had a full-time job. Um, it was just something I'd always wanted to do. I always loved books. Growing up, I always thought I was going to be an author. And then it was sort of in college that I discovered magazine editing and just fell in love with it. And I, I really did love the whatever it was, six or eight years that I worked in that industry. I really loved it, but it was sort of crumbling below my feet as I, yeah. you know, I, I graduated in 2008 and that was when I entered magazines. So like, that's like, <laughs> that's like, I'm going to be a gas station attendant. Cause this is the, in like 1975 gas station yes. attendant was one of the best jobs you can have. It was on the list of good uh, job career moves. <laughs> Time, times have changed. That's that's all I can say. So I, I worked as a magazine editor. And while I was at, I think my last full-time job, I didn't obviously know at the time it was my last full-time job, but I thought I want to have some project that I can work on that I am the boss of and that nobody can lay me off from. And um, that I had the idea for The Lost Night. I knew I wanted it to be a mystery of some kind. And I finally had the idea of setting it in this sort of Williamsburg loft parties of 2009 setting and started writing it. So um, yeah, I started writing it just in my free time. I got pretty serious and wrote a bunch of it during NaNoWriMo 2014. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Writing month mm -hmm. uh, for those who are familiar and, you know, banged out a bunch of it and it was awful. It was really, really bad, but I sort of mistakenly, once I got past that, had this, some cost fallacy idea that like, well, I have to finish it now. I have to keep working because I've already put so much time into it. Thinking I was like 85% of the way through. And in reality, I was on like step two of like a 10,000 mile journey. <laughs> but um, I'm glad they don't yeah, tell I, us because if they tell us that nothing would ever get knew, produced. Yeah. If I knew then what it would mean, uh, oh my God, I never would have finished it. But I, so I just, yeah, worked on it on my own. Um, I did lose my, final for now, full-time job in the middle of that. So I could sort of redouble my efforts as I was freelancing. And um, yeah, started just querying agents when I felt like I'd gotten it as far as I could back in 2017 and um, signed with one then, did more revisions with her. She went out on submission. Um, and then I ended up signing um, with my, with the editor at Random House, who's still my editor now. Uh, three oh, later, that is so. so cool to have the same editor. Yeah, yeah. We wow. really we we 
work really well together and she keeps, I mean, bless her. She keeps buying my next book idea. So yeah. as long as that keeps happening, we're in good shape. Yeah. But at the same time, you still give it to your agent and your agent gives it to your editor. It's not like a direct shot. I pretty much at this point go directly. My agent is wonderful, but she's more, she's less of a wordsmith and more of um, like a manager, more of sort of like oh, a okay. manager. Cool. So she weighs in, but I send stuff to both of them at the same time. Um, and I kind of, you know, I'm directly doing edits and figuring out what to change with my editor, which is, I don't know that that's super common. I definitely have other friends with agents who serve much more as like their first sounding board and you give them lots of notes. But in my case, it's been um, pretty directly working with my editor and that's worked well for everyone. You know what I found interesting and I've kind of only discovered this recently, I also teach and I find I discover things when I teach. I'm like, oh, I think I know it all. It's like, no, I don't know anything. And uh, one of the things was just how much writing is about problem solving. And it's interesting, like earlier you brought up about travel, about traveling. It's all about problem solving. And there's just there's something so important to to being a writer because we write and then then we got to solve the problem of wait Now, how do we craft? You know. Right. Right. No, absolutely. I have a good friend, um, Leah Conan, who also writes wonderful thrillers, but she and I are like crit partners. We read each other's work and um, we have something that we call plot doctoring, which mm -hmm. so one of us will text the other and be like, hey, I need a plot doctoring session. And it's like, OK, how about four o'clock? And in that session, we just set up these impossible scenarios we've like written ourselves into where the plot it's like, OK, I need this character to think this, but get this object over to this room without this, you know, you like set up the parameters yeah. of this puzzle. And then the two of us, it's always easier to come up with stuff for someone else's project than your own. When it's your own, it's impossible. When it's someone else's, it's fun. It's like a fun problem. Right. Um, and we, you know, talk it out and, and work on it till we've sort of, you know, pick at the knot until we've sort of untangled it. Um, but I think, yes, so much of the actual craft of writing a book that works is solving these problems on a micro level and then in the more macro level so much of you know being a writer and um just juggling many spinning plates to mix metaphors of having a career doing it or doing it professionally is problem solving and figuring out you know who to ask for what and how to make everything work and how to you know, when to speak up and when to be quiet and when to trust the people in charge and when to advocate for yourself. And I just think it's constant problem solving. Um, and it's frankly exhausting. Um, so I think, you know, people should know it's not like, unless you're Stephen King, you don't just like write your book and send it off and then you're done. It's like you wear many, many hats over the process of, you know, being a writer. But at the same time with Stephen King, I think he needs some people to tell him no. Can we do oh, this a little oh, shorter? Can it, what, oh why God. are we, why are we just doing that? <laughs> he, like, I mean, love the guys, clearly mm -hmm. so talented, but like, why has nobody told him flat out? Like, sir, we don't need the last 40% of this book. Like, cut it down. Yeah, we don't need to know the description of the whole room for 12 pages. Bless him. I mean, far be it for me. Like he's doing something right. Don't get me wrong. But I do hope if I ever reach Stephen King levels of fame, I will still have an editor who is like slashing and burning. That almost always makes your writing stronger. Just get rid of it. Yeah. Well, I love I love Stephen King. Is uh, I mean, on writing is one of my. It's like the top three books of what every writer should read, um, in my opinion. Really? And I love his journalism. It's he's the guy's off the hook. 
I try, I've never been able to finish a Stephen King novel and I've tried, I've gone in a hundred pages and I'm like, don't care. Oh, <laughs> wow. Even, even some of the more slender early ones. I don't, I don't know if I, uh, I mean, I guess the one I really tried was The Shining. And then I tried a couple that, uh, you know, probably about 10 years ago. I don't know. But you know what? I said the same thing about Kurt Vonnegut when I was 23. I'm like, why would anyone read this crap? And then when I went back to it at 30, I was like, what kind of a snot-nosed idiot was I at 23? Because this is genius. So. Right. You're like, wait, this is brilliant. I will say, I think Stephen King, my favorite kind of Stephen King to write, and I have this like Pavlovian connection between this and like being at my parents cottage in northern wisconsin and like reading it on the dock but like nothing is better than like a dog-eared yellowed 70s paperback of stephen king short stories and mm. maybe there's like one or two novellas that they like throw in there and it's like right each one is short and it just smells like old book so yes. short stories for stephen king might be where he shines because he's forced to keep it into that's right because i like secret window yeah that's there cool yeah yeah. Wisconsin. You grew up in Wisconsin? I did. Yeah. Was it a yeah, small so town? I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, mm-hmm. um, which is why I set a lot of We Were Never Here. A lot of the action is also set in, in Milwaukee. And then, um, as I mentioned, my parents have this cottage um, in northern Wisconsin. So I set a portion of We Were Never Here at sort of a remote cabin on a lake. And that ca- that fictional cabin is much nicer than the cottage my parents have. But um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a Wisconsin girl, but I've been in New York for 13 plus years. So I think I'm officially a New Yorker now. Yeah. Well, what was the transition like going from Wisconsin and then being smash cut into a city where you don't need a car? It's, you know, it's everything's right there. What, what, was, what was that like the first year? It, it, well, I, I studied journalism at Northwestern. So I had sort of this transition of being just outside Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was in Chicago, I had several internships in New York and I just totally fell in love with New York. Um, and was like, I'm going to move there as soon as I graduate. Um, so there was definitely a long period of just, yeah, getting used to like the hustle and bustle of it and the being around people all the time and riding this crowded subway. Um, but, you know, I think I experienced that when I really was young enough to, to love it and to thrive on it. And now that I'm, you know, in my mid thirties, as I said, I live in Park Slope. I'm like buying a car. Like I'm going to have these things that sort of still allow you to live in New York City, but make it a little more manageable. I could not live the way that I did in my 20s now. Were you in Manhattan in your 20s or were you in Brooklyn all the time? I was mostly in Williamsburg. I was in Spanish Harlem for two years. And then uh, I moved over to Williamsburg and I stayed there for 10 10 plus, 10 plus years. Was that at the same apartment? Because that would be rent control, right? Or rent stabilized? It was not at the same apartment. No, mm-hmm. no. My very first one in Spanish Harlem was rent controlled. And like, man, that place was huge. I didn't appreciate it at all because I was just yeah. like 22. And who knows? I paid nothing for that apartment. But no, in Williamsburg, I bounced around to a few different apartments, but all in the same, all off of like the Grand Avenue stop. Mm-hmm. That was my place of, of Williamsburg. Yeah. The L train. I mean, when I, I, you know, I don't have that much experience with New York, but when, but the experience I have when I'm there, I just try to absorb as much of it. And I was working with a, I was working with a crew and one guy is just like, wait, you take the L train in and out of Manhattan. He's like, he's like, that's the worst train in all of New York. And I was like, Oh really? As I'm sitting there like a sardine going, is this, why did we stop? Why did we stop? It's, it's like the people, the people who, you know, came up with the New York city subway way back in the day, never envisioned that like 
millions of people would live in Brooklyn off the L train, but yeah. work in Manhattan and need to ride it every day. Like it was just never intended for that. So yeah, there were, there were definitely some dark days on the trying to pack yourself onto the subway in the morning. Yeah. It was, uh, I just always, there's, I don't know what book it was. It was probably like the air conditioned nightmare or something. A uh, Henry Miller book where he talked about like being on the subway was just dry humping everyone. And it's just like, it just, it's way too intimate. Some it's, of those. It's, it's, yeah. Body to body. I don't miss any of that. It's hard to like yeah. think back to what that was like now that, you know, the pandemic has us all with our own personal bubbles. Right. It's almost like you got to wear a condom and a butt plug to get on the uh, subway just to keep it that safe. That would be one way to guarantee, <laughs> yeah. guarantee something. I mean, you've got, your, you've got your headphones and you just pretend you can't see anyone. Right. Yeah. The headphones are so important. Cause, yeah. cause I, yeah, I mean, when I lived in, because I lived in San Francisco most of my life, and in San Francisco uh, where I lived, you are you you are approached, you are harassed. There's just there's no doubt about it, and you have to have the headphones and you have to have the dead look stare, and um, to get by to walk, or or there's gonna be people following you down the street. Yes, I have definitely experienced that in San Francisco. People following and yeah, yelling, yeah. It's it, now what, how was that compared to New York? Cause like I've had New Yorkers come to San Francisco and go, Oh my God, I've never seen crazy like this. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I definitely prefer New York to San Francisco. And I think that's might be just like an East coast thing. I'm like a very type a like East coast uh, soul and mm-hmm. I feel more comfortable there. And I, I just love, you know, all the creative fields that are centered yes. in New York and, um, no, San Francisco, I always have a lot of fun when I visit, but I sort of have that feeling of like, this is not a place that like suits me if I were to call it home. Um, there's clearly a lot to love. You have access to the outdoors. You have just lots of really cool things about San Francisco, but um, I'm, I'm a New Yorker through and through. If I could bring San Francisco weather with me everywhere, the whole world would be a better place. You like for it to be cloudy, like all the time. <laughs> Well, it, um, well, there's a lot. I mean, when I lived, I lived in the mission for many years, so that was mostly sunny, but you okay. still had the the marine layer and the clouds would roll over the hill and just come in in the morning and then they would dissipate. And it's just, there's a beauty to that. But I love New York like that too. I love New York when it's uh, raining and crisp, you know, there's, there's a beauty to that too. Interesting. Yeah. I like at one point I thought about moving to Seattle after I graduated because every time I visited, it was like beautiful and sunny. And I was like, what a great city. And now in retrospect, I'm like so affected by weather and I just like, I'm not happy unless I get enough sunshine. So thank God I didn't move to Seattle and yeah. like learn the truth about how I was there on the only sunny days of yeah. those years. No, you could be a big time rock star and still want to kill yourself. That's a Seattle thing, right? That's to see. That sounds like Seattle. I think that might be their official logo. Their official slogan. <laughs> that's, a tourism, that's a tourism board. That's how they get you up there. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. But how? But how do you deal with the weather and winter in New York? Because it's not. I mean, there's there's not a reprieve for a while. If you if if you get depressed, I mean, I'm depressed like all the time, and I live in LA, so. Right, right. Yeah, no, I get seasonal affective disorder every year. And every year I'm like, this is the year I'm going to solve it and get in front of it. And one year I like exercised every day and didn't drink at all and ate really healthy. And I lost a bunch of weight, but still depressed. And one year I did like blue light therapy and I did acupuncture and I did all that. And that was all nice, but I was still depressed. I have not actually solved 
the issue of seasonal affective disorder. So I'm just hoping someday I need to be the next Stephen King and then I can like get a house in Puerto Rico or something. And is that yeah. what he does in the winter? No, I'm sure it's just in Maine being being Stephen King, but I yeah. need Stephen King levels of wealth in order to right, to right. winter in Puerto Rico. That's all I meant. Yeah, my old agent, um, she lives in uh, Cobble Hill, I think it's called, right? In Brooklyn? In where? Brooklyn, Cobble Hill? Okay. No. Is yeah, that where? yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So every January, she's in Australia. And it's just for the whole month <laughs> with her family. And I'm just like, oh, that's how you do winter in New York. You go to the Southern Hemisphere in January. That is winning. At, that's just offset of winter. You just go somewhere where it's summer. Yeah, Brilliant. I, I love that. I didn't, I don't have her money. So I'm just like, I, I mean, I don't know how she gets a whole family out of the, out of the New York for a month, but good on her. People. Yeah. Good on her. Like mad respect. January is a miserable time to be in New York. So yeah. Cause, cause, it, for, cause I get to, I get to enjoy it when I come, you know, I'm just like, Oh my God, the weather, the weather, the weather. But what, when is it where you're just like, Oh dear Lord, this is over for me is it like is it january or i mean can you no it's usually february mm. it's usually february when you're like we're not even to march yet <laughs> like, yeah january you're still kind of like running on some like post-holiday fumes and you're like we're doing this it's cold maybe you do some like hiking you do some wintry things and then february is when it's like this is never ending and it's like we just yeah we all become like seattleites and suddenly are borderline suicidal yeah <laughs> And then, and then that first, the first leaf comes out or the, or the first, you see this as a first bud or And I will say, I am happier about spring than anyone I know. Like, I hate that winter, but that means I really love spring. And I get so excited about the little buds that come up and those are going to be dandelions or daffodils or whatever. Like, I get so excited about spring. So I guess that's sort of like that. What's that cliche? Like, that's the clouds you wouldn't appreciate the sun or something without the rain yeah there's something to that though i guess yeah i mean people say that about you live in la people say that in la like it's so the same that you sort of can't mark the passage of time and you're less appreciative of the nice days because it's always a nice day and you just sort of take it for granted yeah I, i i i love la and um but i do miss my san francisco um I remember my last day I was in San Francisco in 2013 and uh, yeah, I lived in the Tenderloin at the time and I was just, I was awake at five in the morning. The sun was coming up. I was walking through the streets as the fog was just whisking through the streets. And now my heart was just kind of going, I may not be seeing this every day. Uh, and it, uh, it was, I just took it so for granted, you know, yeah. and, and then it's just like, Oh, and then I moved to LA and LA is beautiful too in very different ways, but there's uh I mean, you, but as a travel writer, when, what, what, are there some cities where you're just like, oh, I could, uh, I could die here. Did you find other yeah, there's cities? Definitely, there's, there's definitely, I would say probably like one out of every 10. I'm like, oh, I could definitely live here. And you just, you have that, you just have that sense as soon as you sort of get to know a city a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's a handful like that. And it's surprising and they're not super consistent um, going into it that I'm going to just fall in love with it and feel really comfortable there. But yeah, there's places all over that I could live. Wait, 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 what are two of them? Two of them, um, Istanbul and um, Istanbul and Berlin. I feel lame saying two two European ones, but I know there's ones in other, you know. Uh, 
I mean, much, much of Mexico, I would love to live in. San Pancho is a place where I just was like, I could just never come home. I'll just stay here. Berlin seems um, cool. Berlin like seems that. like, cause I met, I know, I wish I was older because the Berlin of the eighties, you know, West Berlin is just an era where I look at it's, you know, I can't believe I'm saying historically it's, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you look at it and you're like, Oh my God, Vim vendors was filming around there. All the bands that were coming together, the, the creative juiciness is just like, yeah. and I've interviewed some of those people that, um, and they're like, oh yeah, nothing. Berlin's just dead after 1989 to them, as far as they're concerned. And it just cracks no, me up. True. <laughs> everyone says that about every, everyone says that about every city, yeah. you know, like after their, after their twenties end and it's like, oh, it's all dead. Or like this bar is dead now. Yeah, it's like, yeah. just, you don't feel comfortable there anymore. And just younger <laughs> people have now taken over. It doesn't mean that it's actually dead. My uh, friend of mine wrote a book called Killing, Killing Williamsburg. And it was uh, and it was about why would you ever want to live in Williamsburg? I think this was around 1999, 2000. And where, you know, people were just buying, they were, they were buying a waterfront place going, well, I'm going to live in this dead zone. <laughs> Next thing you know, here we are. And it's, everyone wants to be in Williamsburg. Right. Well, and then the, the you know, original settlers are like, oh, Williamsburg is so over. And now they're somewhere else. And yeah, right. that's. Now it's New there. Rochelle. I, I don't, I've never been there. I just like saying that out loud. Could be New Rochelle. Could be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's uh, what was, oh, what movie, I was watching. Did you ever, uh, there was this movie called the apartment with Jack Lemmon in it and Billy Wilder wrote it and directed it. And I'd never seen it until like a month ago and it was set in Manhattan. And, uh, but, but all, I think all the, um, all the executives who were screwing around on with all the secretaries, they were uh, the executives lived in New Rochelle. I think it was all about, uh, that's why it came to my head where just, and Jack Lemmon was just a, you know, a guy down on his luck. He had to stay in Manhattan. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was definitely, yeah. In um, how to succeed in business without really trying. There's definitely a song. Um, Happy to keep his dinner warm. That a woman is singing about her, you know, executive crush. And uh, she starts out with New Rochelle, New Rochelle, that's the place that the mansion will be. So she's uh, decided that that's where they're going to set their adorable little white picket fence life. Wow. I wonder if they, I, I don't know if you remember the Dick Van Dyke show. I wonder, because I think they were supposed to be New York based and I wonder where their house was, where they, where he. Yeah, um... I don't know. We just, we, we did uh, How to Succeed in Business without really trying in high school. And so uh -huh. all the, all the numbers are deep deeply embedded in my brain so you know oh you remember uh, were you um did you act were you acting yeah so I did I did acting and singing and things when um not well ever but in high school yeah I was like in the band and I was uh, on a newspaper and did all sorts of, of nerdy nerdy yeah. high school things oh that's cool yeah and the writing the newspaper stuck yeah, I guess it's not shocking. I did, uh, I was like the editor-in-chief of our school newspaper my senior year um, and then entered college as a journalism uh, major. So I, I did, yeah, four years of, of magazine journalism and then went into magazines. When, when you were writing for your high school paper, was there anything that you went, when you got into journalism, you went, oh my God, I was doing that right. Now that I don't know, there was definitely stuff I learned in my journalism classes 
No, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't really know how we like made a newspaper or knew how to do any of it in high school um, in retrospect, but yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. I really don't remember that much about doing uh, high school journalism or how we like had any sense of how to do it. I think we were just emulating like similar articles that had run before. It's probably my best guess. Yeah. It's funny. The, and then, um, I mean, I, I, I grew up in zine culture, you know, so you, I had like temp jobs and then I would, and I would like create my own zine. Oh, he stays after hours. What a nice fella. No, I'm using your copy machine. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there's, there's just, there's such a beauty of getting words on the paper, even on newsprint, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was really fun. I like, remember I wrote, cover articles my senior year and and um yeah there was something i remember i would write an article at home and then i'd put it on a, um, a floppy disk or like a like a some kind of disk and then yeah. i would take that to school and i would like have to leave it in the like this advisor whatever teacher was the advisor mrs michella to leave it in mrs michella's like mailbox so that she could get the copy and put it in paper so that must have been approximately a million years ago when I was doing college radio, we would have to create spots for, you know, different uh, PSAs and, and um, you know, spots for different things. So we use it, but this was right before digital came in. So we were using reel to reel and splicing. So to our, um, I forgot what they called her. She was our, uh, she was the head of, um, you know, that, that angle of radio and she had her box and we would have to put, we would have to put a reel to reel tape in there for her to listen, listen to. Oh no, actually we could, oh, we could put the cassette. We could tape it on cassette and cue it up, but we also had to keep the master tape. And then if it works, it was, oh no, it went to cart. Oh my God, no, it went to cart, sorry. Yeah, they, they had these like things that were like eight track carts. That's right. That was the master tapes. So okay. everything had to go to cart and then we would put the cart into her thing. But I just, I remember a lot of reel to reel. <laughs> it's, I mean, there was something really satisfying too about like, you know, editing stuff with, you know, in a very analog way. And yeah, I think, our, I think our school newspaper, we did have some kind of layout program to do. It wasn't like physically cut and pasted together, but um, no, it is fun to remember having those skills back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, totally. What was the first, what was the first magazine article you published where you were like, just like, Oh my God, I've made it. I don't think I doubt I had made it yet, but when I was an intern at Self Magazine, I wrote this article, I pitched this article that was about um, basically like Franken fruits and Franken vegetables. They were like spliced, um, like purple, purple carrots is probably the most common one, but at the time this was all very exciting. Like, you know, yeah. um, different vegetables and fruits that had been crossed with other things so that they had extra nutrients and different flavors and, and stuff. And it was this like very beautifully laid out page and I worked so hard on it. And I saw my byline for the first time in a national magazine. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I am obsessed with the way that my name looks in print. This is it. Yeah. It was probably like 250 words. If that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember getting my first magazine, uh, uh, stuff stuff placed in magazines and i would go to the supermarket and just be like i am part of this supermarket mythology yes. <laughs> just like yes. i'm on page 84 in that magazine that is me and you just yeah. want to hold it up to the other yeah yes it'd be like 
guess what? <laughs> I jokingly did that at uh, Barnes and Noble because I, I think it was uh, the, it might've been my Mother Jones article. I did a bunch of Mother Jones online, but I, I think I had two in print and one, I just, I opened the page and I like put it right next to me and I kind of sat there and was like, and I, you know, I was like, take some photos of me with this. And people are probably just looking going, <laughs> they're probably looking at me going, oh, there's a poor fellow that just got his first magazine article. <laughs> Uh, yeah, wait, yeah. wait till wait till he finds out this is going to be the best day of his life, and it never gets better. <laughs> He's speaking right now. <laughs> exactly. She only knew. <laughs> yeah. What was it like when you found out about your uh, your book was getting published? When they were like, "Let's sign a contract." Your first one. Yeah. So it was really exciting for the last night. Uh, it had been out for a while, and I got a call from my agent, and she was just like, "Great news! We have an offer." And she told me all about it and I screamed into the phone and um then you know hung up and I, I think I was on my way to the gym I was already in gym clothes and so I like didn't know what to do so then I just went to the gym and I just remember I worked out really hard because I was like so full of excitement and then it was kind of funny because we were never here my current book which just came out um this month is the Reese book club pick for August and uh, the world just found this out on Tuesday, but I found this out months ago uh, via a call from my editor. And like for a thriller author like myself, it's sort of like the thing you dream about, like this has been on the you know, vision board for forever. And so my editor emailed me and the, the, you know, the body of the email just said, the subject line was we were never here and the body of the email said, do you have a few minutes to chat today? And I got this email and I was like, oh my God, like they're canceling the book. They're right. Gonna, they're going to request the advance back. Like it's all over. This is awful. So I was just so like doom and gloom about it. And I called her and she told me, she was like, I have really exciting news. You can't tell anyone, but yeah, this, your book, you know, we were never here is going to be the August book club pick for Reese. And I screamed and screamed, Oh my God. And then, you know, we talked about it for a few minutes and I was, I was here in my office and my girlfriend was right outside in the kitchen working at the table. So she heard me screaming, obviously. So I came out a few minutes later, my face is just, I have this dopey open mouth smile on my face. She's like, what is it? And I was like, my book is going to be the Reese book club pick for August. And like, bless her. She's a, she's like a data scientist. And she goes, the what pick for what? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, bless her. Like, you need people yeah. to remind you that the whole world is not in publishing like you. Um, and once I explained it, she was like, oh, no, yeah, like Legally Blonde. I get it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> like Legally Blonde. <laughs> yeah, Reese. Yes, we love Reese. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, so we like, you know, pieced it all together. And then she was happy for me too. But yeah, that was probably my biggest. And then I think again, I was in gym clothes and like went to the gym. I, mean, I don't work out that often, but both times. So you like, need to wear gym clothes a lot more because it sounds I, like great things happen. Great things happen. No, 99% of the time, nothing good happens. But again, I went to the gym and I was just like chilling it on like the chest press, you know, I was like very full of feelings. Uh, did, did you go, you're like, I got to, how do I call Reese to thank her? Um, no, that was, that was not a thought I had. And, and everyone's like, oh, did Reese call you? Have you talked to Reese? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't talk. Yeah. I don't get to talk to Reese. I don't think that'll ever be a part of it. Right. Silly. Um, so I've not had a direct hookup to Reese. It's funny too, because like more people, I think they think that we're besties now when they're like, 
know, are you able to like nominate books or like can I send you my manuscript? And I'm like, oh, honey. Like, oh my God. I don't know Reese. Yeah. Like, I don't know how any of this happened, but it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a direct line to Reese. I call that um, e I call that eager eyes. I, I really hate it when um you know there's just like oh wait you're working with this person can you, and it's just like, no, and oh my god you're asking and you don't you actually don't live this life you're a real estate agent or something else, and you're like oh cool you can get me in and it's just like, get you in how you're not. <laughs> yeah, it's just what? usually like probably not. Like I'd like yeah. to be a helpful person if I can, but like no I don't. But I don't there's yeah stuff. yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it's, you know, it's great to be in the middle. <laughs> yeah, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Like the Steve Miller Band song says. Yeah. Well, Andrea, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was super fun. Um, and yeah, just fun to chat with you about all things book and book adjacent, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of book adjacent, huh? It's a little, was it a little off-putting that we didn't talk so much book? <laughs> No, it was it was probably a nice you know refresher after a lot of talking about my own book. But wait, can I still put in a plug for it here at the end? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so oh wait, wait, hold on. Three, two, boom. We were never here. Out August third is a thriller that's about two globe-trotting best friends who, on the trip of a lifetime through Chile, kill a backpacker in self-defense and decide to bury the body and and you know try to get away from what they've done. But the truly frightening thing is that this is not the first time that one of their trips has ended in bloodshed. So it's about sort of their friendship being tested to the limits as the walls close in on them on uh, their cover-ups. And it's a friendship story. It is a thriller. It is a caper. Um, and it is hopefully a lot of fun. And people seem to be just really enjoying coming along on this journey. So for anyone who likes thrillers, who likes travels, who likes uh you know international murder vacations we were never here um check it out out now and cut <laughs> you're listening to 101.9 fm kpcr lp santa cruz